Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Madeline Brand. Madeline Brand. Madeline Brand is a journalist and host of Press Play on KCRW, Southern California's flagship NPR affiliate. She's best known for her 25-year career in public radio, reporting and hosting for NPR in Los Angeles, New York, Washington, and beyond. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Madeline Brand. Okay, thank you, Lewis. And I want to just introduce our panel and just jump right into it. Sitting to my right is John Michaels. He's a constitutional law scholar at the UCLA School of Law, a specialist on the separation of powers. His writing has appeared all over in places like Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post, and The Guardian. So this is John Michaels. Sitting next to him is Katie Harriger. She's a political scientist at Wake Forest University. She studies the tensions between executive power and the rule of law. She is also the author of The Special Prosecutor in American Politics. So we'll talk a lot about Bob Mueller with her. And Joel Aberbach is a professor emeritus of political science and public policy at UCLA. He is the author of numerous books on the federal executive branch, including keeping a watchful eye, the politics of congressional oversight. All right, let's jump right in. Everyone is a Twitter about whether or not Bob Mueller is going to speak in the form of releasing his report. And I just want to throw it open to all of you. What do you expect to come out of this report? What will be in it? And most crucially, what won't be? We'll start with you, Katie. <laughs> Well, we, I, wish, I wish I knew that, <laughs> as we all do. Um, I mean, I think it'll be, as special prosecutor reports have been in the past, it'll be a sort of summary of all the things that they have done and the decisions that they have made. And it will include both decisions to prosecute, but also decisions not to prosecute, um, and why. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think probably the thing, uh, we've already seen quite a few prosecutions. I think that... <laughs> Everybody's so focused on the president that they forget that there are a lot of indictments and a lot of successful... Like 19 or so, yeah, correct? Yeah, I mean, and I, I think the number of counts is close to 100 different counts that people have either ple pled guilty to or been successfully prosecuted for. So some of that, some of what will be in the report we already know. Right? Right. I think what we don't know is what it will say about the president. Right, and so... That's what everyone really wants to know. Of course. I mean, <laughs> come on. The 19 is great, but so how, you know, I mean, in terms of productivity. So, but how would we judge Bob Mueller if he comes up short when it comes to the big fish? John. So, so I think there's a decent chance that the report, as comprehensive and damning as it Will, will be, to the extent it is released, will underwhelm some. Because we've heard, we've been constantly bombarded with scandal after scandal, uh, impropriety after impropriety, infraction after infraction. That there's not going to be, maybe there will be, but I think there's a decent chance there isn't more than the, the sum total of what is already being at least discussed. So if, it, if it's not been put in, in the files for particular uh, indictments, it's there's a good chance we won't be shocked by anything, and I think that ha there's a danger with that because the report is being hyped, and the report and there's a great expectation for it. And if it's a lawyerly document that has plenty to plenty to criticize, damn, uh, convict, or or to go down that route, or impeach, or to go down that route, it's still we're so. Um, uh, uh, attuned to the day-to-day -day shortcomings, transgressions of this administration, that it may not have the kind of sensationalism that maybe people have primed for at, you know, after Ken Starr or whatever else. Hmm. So I do. I, I would like to calibrate expectations. Okay, that's wise. And you know, I think I've always said that one of the dangers or downsides of special prosecutors is that people don't understand sort of what it is they're actually charged with doing which is to decide whether a crime has been committed and whether there's sufficient evidence to, to prosecute that crime, right? And most prosecutors aren't going to pursue it unless they think they have a pretty damn good chance of successfully prosecuting <laughs> the case, right? And so, but the cases always have a whole bunch of other things around them that are important and are important for the public to know and to understand. I mean, I think it's clear already without Mueller's report, just based on the indictments and on what's been discovered elsewhere, 
that the Russians were trying. <laughs> I mean, he was charged with figuring out were the Russians trying to interfere with the election. And there's overwhelming evidence that that is, in fact, the mm -hmm. case, right? But everyone is so focused on, was Donald Trump pulling all the strings? Whether you can, whether there's enough evidence to prosecute him for that is a whole different question than whether bad things happen, right? But, but and we we're so focused on, are we going to get the big fish, I think is the language you use, <laughs> that we're maybe missing the big picture, uh, right? There's but, a lot of fish in the ocean. But didn't we know before <laughs> Mueller... Yeah, there are a lot of fish. They some speak Russian, some speak English. Um, but, but didn't we know beforehand, because the, the uh, intelligence community had already concluded that mm -hmm. the Russia yeah. had interfered in the election. Yeah. So, so, you know, so w what does this mean? You, you, you like to study, you studied politics of this. What does this mean for our broader political moment that we have these set of facts and yet there's a great division in terms of whether we're going to believe these set of facts. Well, and, and the other piece of this is if, if you have something that's long and complex, which assuming the report actually gets released, I assume it will be given all the time that's gone into it, um, imagine the spin machine on the other side that's going to go to work obfuscating each point um, that seems the most dangerous to the to the Trump administration or to the president himself. Um, and it's not likely to be a kind of slam dunk thing. And in addition to that, imagine um, the difference, say, from the Nixon experience in, in, uh, in the 70s, but only in this case, the president's party controls the jury, which is the Senate, um, and the vice president, for those who don't like the president, is not exactly a gift. <laughs> um, whereas in, in the Nixon case, they had replaced a vice president who was also suspect with Gerald Ford, who was not only a Republican, but popular across the, um, the party lines, and therefore highly acceptable as a replacement. I mean, a lot of the circumstances are really very different in, in this case. So may, may I just, just quickly add on to that, because I, I agree with everything that's been said. The, the fact that we've been, we've, we're down the road this far, the fact that the Republican Party has not closed ranks against him, that there isn't this kind of push to distance oneself, but instead to... The, you know, these televised moments in the cabinet hearings which everyone goes around and says what they <laughs> like most about the president. Right. Um, uh, the fact that there um, uh, speaks to that there is a big fish, but there are a whole lot of uh, fish that, that are also just complicit in what, whatever is going on today. Whether that's the, you know, whether, even if they came and have nothing to do with the criminality, but the kind of, the, the flagrant um, uh, uh, abuse character indictment of judges, of members of the uh, Mueller team, constantly undermining, questioning the media. All of this is, is part of a, uh, I mean, it seems like a, a systematic campaign to delegitimize and discredit whatever's produced and those who are bringing the charges here. And there's a lot of either silence or uh, a little bit of hand-wringing, but no condemnation. So we don't see the idea that the Senate would ever, turn, would ever turn, that party falls to the wayside and institutional integrity comes to the fore. And I worry about that as well for a moment that's much bigger than the big fish in this case. Mm. So that brings up the question of obstruction of justice. And you know, you're talking about it in a bigger sense. Yeah. But Mueller is reportedly looking at it in a very specific mm -hmm. sense when it comes to the firing of James Comey, the former FBI chief. Katie, what is the definition of obstruction of justice? <laughs> so there's three elements that have to be proven um, in obstruction of justice. And the first is that there is a guilty act um, and I think that Mueller is focusing on the um, firing of Comey in terms of the guilty act, and then some guilty acts before that would be like bringing him into his office and closing the door, telling no one else to be there and asking him to lay off on Michael Flint. 
The second one is that you have to have a corrupt purpose. That might be the hardest thing to prove. Um, I mean, two people were in the room, and he can say, I just felt sorry for Michael Flynn. Right? That's not a corrupt purpose. Um, <laughs> so you would need to find some additional things, but there's probably something there. And then it has to actually interrupt an actual proceeding of some sort. That is, you know, have an, an intent to interrupt it. And that's clearly, I think, present in the fact that the investigation mm. had begun. The FBI investigation had begun. And what about this famous interview he gave Lester Holt uh, <laughs> of NBC, where he said, yeah, it was because of Russia. That's why I fired him. Well, I don't think that's enough, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and part of it has to do with, I think, something that you said already, which is just about, I mean, the president says things constantly and changes his mind constantly and reverses himself constantly and fibs constantly in ways that... <laughs> so he can say, I wouldn't really mean that. I mean, I... I mean, come I, on, you know come me. On, you I know, say all sorts you know of me. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that alone, but it might be a piece of a case that you make. That, so you put all of these sort of pieces together. Just like, I mean, I think they're looking at, in, their, in terms of the Russia investigation, these statements that he makes saying, oh, I hope the Russians do this. I hope they, you know, do drop all this information that they have. That would be great. Or how about investigating? You know, and then saying, oh, I'm going to have a very big thing to report. You know, yeah. that, those alone, again, because of sort of his public persona, might not be enough. But then if you have information on the backside about two days before that, people in his campaign got the information, then those kind of public statements make a bigger yeah. difference, right? That they link to actual other evidence that they have. I just think the stuff he says publicly on its own is not probably indictable. It, it's an irony <laughs> that his, his bad reputation in many ways is a strength in this particular setting rather than a weakness. Mm -hmm. um, but it's only from Trump that you could imagine, oh, I say stuff all the time. You know, I was just, what did you say the other day? I'm off the record. I was just mm. talking. You know, I say all kinds of stuff. If right. I may just really quickly on that, it, it also comes out outside of the, the investigatory context as well because of the various um, hateful things that he's, he's uttered or tweeted about. And then the question is, are the policies informed or under, undergirded by some kind of racial animus? And he said, well, I'm just talking, and this is just my public persona. There's no legal hook here, as it were. So this is, this is in some ways, a broad, you know, this, is, this is the problem or the challenge, right. because we may have other presidents who aren't necessarily corrupt, but presidents who have now, I mean, from going from a bully pulpit to this, you know, this, this you know, basically untested and only now being worked out, set of social media platforms that are beyond the scope of what any other president has ever utilized. How would you, you, you bring up a good point about that. It made me think of the, the travel ban, the Muslim yes, travel yeah. ban. And eventually the court sided with him. Yeah. How do you think the judiciary has been able to hold this president to account? Um, uh, here and there is the short answer to it. I mean, th this is a troubling moment for um, the court or courts in general, um, in part because the nomination and confirmation process has become so political. So it is very uh, judges that that uh, side that uh, uh, issue opinions that go against or that kind of. Uh, 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 require the president to refrain from doing certain types of activities, they're automatically labeled uh, Obama judges or Clinton judges. <coughs> By and large, those are relatively moderate centrist uh, 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 jurists, as it were. Um, on the other hand, we have now successive administra Republican administrations packing the courts with conservative ideologues. Um, so the more the judges seem like additional arms of political parties, the harder it's going to be to feel in any way comforted by their, their results, whether in this case you win and your side wins and in another case your side loses. Uh, it, looks, it, it looks and has a different feel today than it's had. I mean, the courts have always been political, but given how much of this president's, uh, uh, let's say, public and private affairs have been intermingled with the court or been presented to the court. We're really seeing, it's real gut check for the court. And 
it, it remains to be seen whether the Supreme Court is uh, going to be in a position to, to, to draw a firm line on mm -hmm. this precedent. You know, more broadly than that, I think is the, I think there's clearly a majority on the current Supreme Court that actually really likes executive power and has a pretty expansive notion of executive power. And so I think they will be torn, I think, between not wanting to be seen as the president's court. I mean, in the same way he has my generals, right? He, he's now sort of regularly saying, oh, this is going to get struck down by the lower courts with all those Obama judges, but my court will take care of it. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that people like John Roberts, for example, will be quite torn between wanting to advance sort of at a philosophical level executive power because they like executive power and they think the executive has been too restrained and they have a sort of notion of the unitary executive that is pretty broad in its mm -hmm. powers and the concern about what it means for the institution if he keeps talking about his court, like, you know, I, you're, my, you're my guys. <laughs> Joel, a little step back. Uh, where are we in terms of the power, the executive branch of the, the power of the executive branch? Obama also issued a lot of executive orders. Yes, and we, we're we're somewhere in an arc of executive power that, you know, it's like a forty-five degree angle going up. And as you said, uh, it's not just the Republicans. I mean, Obama when he couldn't get Congress to do what he wanted, used executive orders fairly extensively. Um, and uh, the Trump administration has done that a great deal. The latest challenge, uh, which is to Congress's spending power, is probably the most fundamental mm -hmm. of, of the recent examples. And it's fascinating, again, the way, I mean, what we think is going to happen is that uh, there'll be votes in each chamber that will uh, oppose what Trump has done, and then there'll be a veto, and they won't be able to overturn the veto. And assuming that that sets a precedent, it's quite devastating for the Congress, because its most fundamental powers, uh, the power of the purse, the power to spend money. So um, this is a huge challenge mm. that Trump has presented them with, and he's chosen to be very confrontational about it. Um, he didn't have to do it this way. Um, Which he admitted publicly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right? Didn't he, didn't he say, I didn't have to do it. I didn't have to yeah. declare an emergency. Exactly. Which by definition means this it is, wasn't an emergency. This is a true in-your-face thing. <laughs> yeah. And it's aimed at a part of his constituency that actually revels in his style. And that part of his constituency is not a majority of the country. We think it's somewhere between 35 and you know maybe 42, 43% or so. But it's big time important in the Republican Party. And, and why is that? Because that constituency is overly represented in rural districts that are typically Republican? Well, it's not just rural districts. It's also working certain other kinds mm -hmm. of districts, uh, working class districts around the country. But one way in which our politics has changed over the last four or five decades is that at one time you had Democrats from the South who dominated in many ways the life of the Congress. This is in the, in the period of racial segregation and such. And when people talk about working across the aisles and cutting deals and all the rest of it, those were the guys who were doing it because they had a foot in both yeah. camps. They've now, to a large extent, disappeared, replaced by orthodox, more orthodox or more conservative Republicans, along with Republicans in other parts of the country. And they're the, they're the core of the Republican Party at, uh, at this point. Mm. So it's a much more conservative party than it was, uh, it was before, and it faces and the political structures that are making decisions also look very different than they did um, years ago. But it wasn't um, so long ago that <laughs> the Republicans' party rallied around Mitt Romney as the leader of their party when he was running. I mean, that wasn't that long ago, right? right. So how is it that they are now able to, to go, Mitt Romney now looks very centrist. 
Um, how, how is it that they're now willing to say, you know what, no, we are, we are now this? Well, one of the reasons is uh, <laughs> that Donald Trump managed to do what none of them thought he could do, which was to secure the nomination of the Republican Party. He has become the face of the party, and the others face a situation in which, given that they have to deal with him, and given the, the composition of the primary electorate, they're very nervous about crossing Trump. And he knows that, and has used that very effectively. Okay, just getting back to the Mueller report, just for a second. Um, so let's say he, re he releases it to the Attorney General. He doesn't release it to the public. Right. Does the Attorney General, who also has, at least on the record, a very generous view of executive power, mm -hmm. does the Attorney General say, okay, I'm gonna now make this public? Does he not make any of it public? Does he redact some of it? And if so, if he does the last two things, what happens next? Right. So the Department of Justice regulations that sort of govern this say that um, he has to make a determination of whether it's in the public interest to release it. I think, I think it will be impossible to release nothing because I, it seems impossible to say it's not in the public interest. <laughs> so I, I think there will be something that, that is released. Um, then he has to make a determination of, of whether there are some things, I think the things that would be clearly redacted would be grand jury testimony because it's not supposed to be made public. Um, there might be some uh, national security questions, especially since, you know, how we surveil the Russians is part of how we got a lot of <laughs> the evidence that we have, and that's not, not that kind of stuff is going to be redacted and, and should be, I think. Even most if people it was would in agree. that so called dossier, some of that information? I, I mean, I, I think. I think so. Yeah. If, if, it, if it's actually going, if, if it would reveal in some way the way in which we surveil the Russians, it's not going to be redacted. And I, and I don't think it should be. I think most people would agree on that. So then the question is, decisions not to prosecute. The Department of Justice has a view, a point of view that is that you should not, like indictments are what speaks, and if, if people are not indicted, they should not, you should not release sort of what evidence you had against them. Like the decision not to indict is a decision to stop that, and that will be the big question, is if, if the decision is we can't indict the president and therefore we're not gonna indict the president, and that other rule of the Department of Justice, which is that we don't report on people we don't indict, that will be the big question, mm. I think. Why don't we indict a sitting president? <laughs> John. So there is a um, longstanding uh, Office of Legal Counsel interpretation of the Constitution that um, essentially says that a President, a sitting president, may not be indicted, or if, or only if, or alternatively, may only be indicted after an impeachment. Um, that is not a court of law, as much as I've already said that you know, who knows about the courts of law? I mean, that is an independent judicial determination, which is different from a um, executive branch determination. It too is by it, it is it is you know trans administration. It has been recognized by multiple administrations of cross political parties. I mean, one of the stories that I think was Im implicit in that earlier conversation is that Democrats and uh, Republicans alike, when they become presidents, like executive power. And they're going to have uh, Justice Department officials who embrace a, a capacious understanding of executive power. Um, so that's on the record, that's on the book. So it could, the Justice Department could credibly point to a long-standing practice, a long-standing legal interpretation that we don't indict um, and have plenty of cover. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the last word. It doesn't mean that it invariably has to be that way. But the, this administration, uh, and, and for instance, I, I, might, I might read the, 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 the scope of presidential power in the Constitution a little bit less generously than that. Um, but what's powerful here is that the, the, this administration can point to previous administrations and say, we're not making up new laws. We're not making up new policies. We're just following the Clinton-Obama playbook. And that'll give them a lot of traction. And the idea that it would just be too distracting that 
if, if a sitting president was filing an indictment, he couldn't conduct the affairs of state. Uh, maybe it cuts in on executive time. To, uh, 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 that is that is um, that is an argument. There's also a, a a a kind of a textual reading of the Constitution that that suggests that uh, in, that one reading of it is that uh, indictment only comes uh, after an impeachment, as it were. Impeachment. It is not legal. It's political. Correct. This is this is a political a political act. Impeachment. It's a political act with a lot of legal implications. I mean, there there are um, when the trial comes, for instance, there's a there's a literally a lawyer defending the president. Um, and the trial in the Senate. In the Senate mm -hmm. and a prosecutor and, and that sort of thing. Um, the in the House, it's a it's more like a grand jury. Mm -hmm. I think that's the analogy. Uh, probably it's best. Do you expect there to be impeachment? In the House, I expect there'll be at least an attempt, based on what the what the uh, Democratic leadership and the committee leadership has signaled. Um, whether they'll really go forward with it, um, I'm not sure. But they've certainly put themselves in a position where talk about the constituencies of the Republican Party, the Democratic constituency will be exceedingly upset if they don't give it at least a try. So I, I expect them to do something. So the definition is the oft-repeated high crimes and misdemeanors, which pretty much would encompass anything. Like, it could be like a parking ticket, could be a misdemeanor, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to impeach over a parking ticket. But they have wide latitude. In impeachment? Yes, to bring ch impeachment charges. Well, they have wide latitude at that stage, but that, that um, doesn't mean that that merely, merely in quotes, impeaching someone has the significance necessarily that we, we use the word impeachment, we said we should impeach the president if, we, if we're uh, of that point of view. But remember that President Clinton was impeached and it did um, very little, uh, either, either to his basic reputation or to the reputation of his administration and the trial went in, in his favor. So, and in fact, uh, quite the opposite. It rallied his supporters, yes. correct? Correct. And, and he got more popular yeah. the yes. longer it went on. So is yeah. that a calculation in this particular case? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, the things that I have read um, that Speaker Pelosi has said in terms of trying to tamp down the Democratic uh, desire for an impeachment process is like, let's be careful, look what happened before. Like, we wouldn't actually want to make the president who currently has, does not have majority support, actually get more support if it looks like, <laughs> um, if, if it has the same effect. Right. right. But at the same time, you Which is also a political calculation. Also, in the whole proceedings, perhaps bringing to light all sorts of evidence uh, damning evidence that could erode a president's power and popularity. Yeah, so I think um, the decision whether or not to go forward in the House with impeachment is going to ma be made on political grounds and with the understanding that there will be no conviction because there's not been a single you know, clue that the Senate, which needs two-thirds of the senators to convict, are anywhere close to that number. So it's, it really is a political calculation about whether it makes more or less sense to do a public airing of the president's um, um, short, shortcomings, as it were there. Um, and and it's, um, uh, you know, I might quibble a little bit with the, the, or maybe with the question or the answer about the, you know, the politics versus law distinction. It just, it blends so, far together in this space, but also in, in conventional prosecutions as well, as well. The decision whether to prosecute is often a highly political decision. And as we see with various, let's say, political candidates who are being, let's say, challenged for their records as a DA, why did you prosecute here and not prosecute there? That's an inherently political decision. Um, so it's really hard to uh, uh, say, okay, we're now in full legal mode, or we're now in full politics mode. It, it blends together, and it blends together in some ways that are quite um, uh, uh, useful and interesting in a time in which the institution 
of Congress functions well. So there are certain due process protections that are afforded in that space. Um, they're not the same as what would be in a criminal proceeding. But of course, the end result, the worst that can happen if in a conviction with uh, after impeachment is you leave office. You don't get incarcerated. You don't get fined. Um, so it's, it, it strikes me as it's, it's, it's well calibrated, but it requires this kind of an ongoing understanding that everyone's acting in good faith. And we're in a moment where very few are acting in good faith. Hmm. Um, and so it raises questions. Do we, this is along the points that were made, but do we, do we go ahead and, 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 burn the whole thing down and we're going to go and do it and we'll worry about if this these tools are used against the next um, administration for a parking ticket, as it were. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard political calculation. A lot of prosecutions involve a lot of hard political calculations. Right. Yeah. Okay, so meanwhile, there are state prosecutions and investigations happening into this president and his finances and his businesses and all sorts of stuff. How do they differ from the federal investigations? Well, um, th there's another federal investigation going on too, which is in the Southern District of New York, right? right? So, which is also interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it was really smart of Mueller actually to when, when stuff came up that wasn't sort of in his lane in terms of um, the Russia investigation and things immediately coming from that, to pass that off to the Southern District of New York because it makes it, that investigation is sort of largely going on, I think, under the radar because everyone's focused on Mueller. And there may be sort of stronger, clearer kind of evidence like checks and things like that <laughs> in terms of the campaign finance violations of the Michael Cohen. Stuff. Yeah. And, uh, but the state investigations then are looking at the Trump Foundation and the, the Trump business in terms of violating state laws. So it really, I think, has kind of... And can a state indict a sitting president? We don't know. <laughs> Just those interpretations don't cover state, as far as I know. Don't cover the questions about Right, I mean, because that question hasn't, you know, in the contemporary context at least, hasn't been um, discussed. I, I think it's a question that would get litigated for certain if, if a state prosecutor did indict the president. It was and by that we're talking litigated. like the New York Attorney General, not the Southern District, which falls under the attorney, the federal Attorney General's purview, which again has the recommendation not to indict a sitting president. Right. Okay. So it might be in Donald Trump's best interest to secure re-election so that he doesn't face <laughs> a prosecution in the next six years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would think that would be right. It'd be a good idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what happens after that? Does he, is he then fighting legal challenges for? You mean if, after what? After the second term is over, should he win re-election? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, well, I mean, I think there's probably, you know this better than I do, but there's probably statute, uh, statute of limitations issues um, about whether some, some of, of the things that, you know, there's there's no statute of limitations on murder, but there's statute of limitations on certainly some, a number right. of the things that he's accused of doing. I also wouldn't be shocked if uh, the next president doesn't go for blood, put that put that to put that to rest, um, and say we need to move on. This was a bad chapter, but we need to come together as opposed to mm -hmm. continue to divide. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's what, the, what I would prefer or not prefer. I'm just saying that is a distinct possibility. It's a very different analogy. It's a very limited analogy. But there were calls when President Obama was elected to go after members of the Justice Department and members of the CIA under the George W. Bush administration, mm -hmm. um, particularly for mistreatment of detainees in Guantanamo, and. Obama took some heat from his from his base to say, you know, we need to move forward. We need to um, uh, uh, come together, and we have other issues to solve, and we can't be mired in this forever and ever and ever. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if another president. It depends on which president, which you know, if this is a you know a Joe Biden versus a Bernie Sanders, we might have a you know, depending on which part of the Democratic Party. Um, uh, takes the helm next could say a lot in the same way that we're, the house you know the house democrats right. there are some house democrats who are you know like 
proudly socialistic, or if not socialist, right? And there are others who won seats that, uh, that but for Trump, would never be held by Democrats. And they're hanging on by, they're hanging on by a thread that if, if the president were less corrupt, less incompetent, less whatever, that seat would be safely um, Republican, including many districts in California that, that made a huge difference. And if there's a precedent here, it's, it's Ford's pardoning yeah. of yeah. Nixon, which you know, a lot of people argue was clearly not a very good idea. But I mean, while you were asking the question, I had this horrible thought of um, Trump declaring a national emergency at the end of his second term and saying he can't leave. <laughs> more even but more plausible than that would be the president pardons everyone including himself and we don't know that is also a question can the president pardon himself and if this this could be litigated through his natural life yes i mean these are these are i mean these would not be questions that are resolved quickly has anyone actually thought about that seriously about a president pardoning themselves has they, have they ever had to think about that there's been discussion, certainly. And, and uh, is there a legal argument for You mean for before it? this president? Yeah. I don't think, I don't know of any conversation about that particular question. Right? I mean, presidents have, part, have used the pardon power sort of at the end of special prosecutor investigations. I mean, Gerald Ford being <laughs> Exhibit A, but um, George H.W. Bush yeah. pardoned the people who had been con you know, convicted in the Iran-Contra Mm -hmm. and who were indicted in Iran-Contra. Um, President Clinton uh, pardoned, what was her name, Susan? McDougal. McDougal, mm -hmm. um, as he was leaving office. The difference was they did it like on their way out because they knew that there would be... <laughs> but you would have to <laughs> have would a be unpopular, pardon, right? and if um, you're not going to... So you, you, can can't do it pro you can't do it proactively, can you? Like there say, are like, prospective parts. So, so Nick, Nixon's was a pro uh, the Ford's pardon of Nixon was prospective. Oh, I see. I see. Yes. So he could like, say for any crimes like whatever. that I have committed in, while I was in office, I am pardoning myself for forever. Is, is what you're saying? Well, that's still a different story than someone else pardoning yeah. President Trump for any and all. Uh, uh, crimes that may or may not have been committed from this period to that period, right? I, I assume that's what the Ford, I, I don't remember the language of the Ford no. veto, but it's quite expansive, right? Yeah, I don't remember the exact language, okay. yeah. yeah. It basically shut off any ability to prosecute him after he left office for anything. <laughs> We're a really unpopular well. panel, everyone's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, this is, now we're in the mental health part of the program. I, by the way, it points out a, a, an essential dilemma, which is that with the checks and balances and the shared powers and all the elements of our system, it rests on an assumption that while the governors, the, the political elite may not be angels, as they said in the federal papers, there's a certain level of decorum and a certain set of norms that they're supposed to follow. And one of the things that's been most difficult, and I, I think for a lot of people dis disconcerting about the Trump period, is that he has violated many of these norms in a way that no one else has. And uh, it disconcerts most of us, and um, except for his core supporters. So and we're so we're, I mean, we have a system because the 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 reference there or the allusion there was to James Madison's yeah. framing that we need lots of checks and balances because otherwise unchecked power can be abused in, in egregious right. ways and that at that time they were very mindful of the king of England and what right. we so right now we have the we have in having checks and balances has trade-offs sometimes things that really need to get done get slowed get right. kind of gummed up in the works um, but we we bear that cost, often begrudgingly we bear that cost, to prevent situations like today from going as far as they have. So we're getting none of the positive right. <laughs> virtue, we're getting, I shouldn't say none, we're getting few of the positive virtues of che checks and balances, but yet we're still, we, we still have all the, the, the slowdown and the, what yeah. folks call gridlock going on, in part because there's, there is, there's not decorum or good faith or however you want to put it, that has kind of eroded. And it's mixed with the uh, the founders were worried about what they called the mischiefs of faction, 
So they expected there to be numerous yeah. factions and lots of political competition, which would also offset some of these dangers uh, or potential problems. But today we have much more disciplined parties and the existence, particularly of the level of discipline that so far the Republicans in the Congress have been able to show uh, has a profound effect on, on all of this. Well, one day, Donald Trump will not be president. And so where does that leave the Republican Party? Uh, it's, a, it's, a very, um, it's a very good question. And I, I think privately, a lot of them are, are asking that question. But there are, there are very few of them have raised it publicly. And the few who have, you notice, um, went by the wayside last time. Um, yeah pushed out by the Trump people. Well, Lindsey Graham is back in the fold. Yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about the 25th Amendment uh, before we open it up to questions. So this was enacted... More bad news, people. <laughs> <laughs> so this was enacted after JFK's assassination. And um, so it, it basically instructs, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, on the procedure with which to remove a president should he be incapacitated. And from what I can discern reading it, it seems pretty vague. It's mainly referring to a physical problem, like if the president is shot or suffers a stroke, something like that, but not considering mental incapacitation. <laughs> Necessarily, I mean, there's a, there is a strict well, definition I mean, I think of what would certainly they weren't thinking about whether you just think someone's doing such a horrible job that, right. or if someone's crazy, or they're not saying, saying that. Well, either. no, I mean, I actually think they imagine craziness, maybe not the particular craziness <laughs> that we're encountering, but I mean, they were concerned about. Right. Uh, Woodrow Wilson's case was really kind right. of what yeah, drove right. a lot of the yeah. discussion about it because he was incapacitated from a stroke that had you know, right. neurological impact on right. his ability yeah. to make decisions and apparently his wife was running things. Right. You thought we never had a woman president, but we actually <laughs> have. <laughs> <That is true. laughs> Often overlooked, Edith Wilson. But, but, but it is not someone who is making rash decisions or, right. or who is not acting in the public right. good. Right, I mean, it didn't imagine that. I mean, it was really more worried about right. physical incapacitation right. or in some ways mental incapacitation that would come from a stroke or that would come from dementia. So there was apparently some discussion when Ronald Reagan in the sort of later yeah. mm, stages yeah. of his presidency um, was starting to show the early signs of Alzheimer's, some like, apparently brief right. discussion about it. But, it. but the process is designed to be difficult for good reason, right? You right. don't want sort of some rump group in the cabinet to right. just like be able to remove the duly elected president of the United States. Right. And so it, you know, it, it, the barrier is very difficult to overcome. I think you have to distinguish, too, between, say, a, a nervous collapse, which might be covered under the, that amendment, and a personality flaw, or maybe a package of personality flaws. <laughs> that would be a much more difficult situation in terms of trying to bring the amendment to bear. The, so you had Rod Rosenstein, apparently, according to Andrew McCabe, ac actively pursue this question and see if there were cabinet members who would agree to to go along with it, as, along with the vice president. I think you have to have that too, right? Yeah. So, and this was yeah. ap after he f uh, Trump fired James Comey. So, I mean, would that rise to the level of, of a 25th Amendment concern? So there's this, I guess I'm less caught up on the, the scope of coverage of what counts as an impairment or an inability. I, I think these, I, I think we don't, you know, to, to think about the original understanding of the amendment, it's it's not the uh, in, it's not the kind of methodological approach I use in other contexts. So I would be I, I also would not use it here about what exactly were they thinking about JFK. First of all, we know so much more about mental health today than we knew about in the '60s. That like that the you know notion of like whether something was you know. Alzheimer's or some kind of cognitive inability or whatever the range of issues. Um, I do think that the, the claim that is this something that we knew all along and voted for him nonetheless 
is it poses the exact problem that it's if it's a known character flaw or we didn't get it because he was so we didn't realize it because he was so carefully managed to the extent he was carefully managed or, um, at, on the on the campaign trail or that we only saw a glimpse of it um, that's a harder question um, but most importantly is there you know how are you going to get a majority of this cabinet who <laughs> A majority of the cabinet won't condemn like overt claim, you know, overt instances of of let's say uh, sympathy or uh, endorsement of white uh, white supremacy. I don't think that this is a a path. This this is a path that um, uh, I can't imagine the currently constituted cabinet uh, pursuing with any with any degree of um, success or or uh, uh, or seriousness. I, I mean, we have no. I don't. We don't have any evidence of the current members of the cabinet standing up to the president on anything. Okay, so the three questions posed in the description of tonight's program: impeachment, indictment, and Twenty Fifth Amendment. No, no, and no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe it's a little I mean, soft. I, I, I think there's an argument <laughs> to be made that the Department of Justice is wrong; mm -hmm. that the president can't be. Mm -hmm. Indicted. I mean, impeachment is just as burdensome, if not more so, on a president mm -hmm. than a criminal indictment. Um, but impeachment is allowed, right? And, and you, have to, you definitely spend a lot of yeah. time defending yourself. And I think, you know, in contrast to the what you might call this sort of narrow technical <coughs> reading of the text, it depends on a colon <laughs> that says, you know, impeachment should happen, and then after impeachment, prosecution can still happen. In other words, it, it's basically saying. You know, impeachment doesn't absolve you if you've committed a crime. You can still be prosecuted for that crime. And, sorry, and impeachment's easy. The, impe the conviction's yeah. hard, but the impeachment actually, yeah. they could do that. Yeah. They could do that next week. Yeah. Right. So we, that's the, not a But the a other long. principle, a constitutional principle, what I, which I would say is a broader constitutional principle, is that no one's above the law. Right? <laughs> and so, you know, I, li I like to say to people, well, the president, then candidate, bragged that he could shoot somebody you know, in Times Square and get away with it. And I just say, can that be true? <laughs> can that be true? I mean, I, I like to think not. <laughs> I prefer to think not. <laughs> but that means someone has to challenge the Department of Justice's interpretation, right? In um, Leon Jaworski, the special prosecutor in Watergate, made a similar conclusion. Um, but did decide to make him an unindicted Nixon, an unindicted co-conspirator, which had implications in terms of getting the tapes and those kinds of things. Ken Starr got two lawyers to tell him that he could <laughs> indict the president. So there is another interpretation um, out there. But the, but the DOJ's interpretation has been for across number of administrations this. But I, I think someone needs to challenge that. And the Mueller team could. So. The mm -hmm. Mueller team could, and then it would force a showdown whether he would be fired for mm -hmm. proceeding. Wow. Jonathan Arevalo, uh, master's student from the University of Regensburg in Eastern Bavaria. Uh, my question is about liberal democracies in general, but perhaps you can address it specifically in the context of the United States. What should liberal democracies do when their most important political practice, which is uh, democratic elections, uh, what should they do when these practices are compromised by geopolitical competitors? Mm. Do they uh, simply allow their geopolitical competitors to have this sort of leverage over them? Or do they reassess the decisions of democratic elections um, and decisions from the people? Thank you. <laughs> the political scientists right. are looking at each other. Yes. <laughs> Well, one of the first things they probably should do is to promise not to interfere in other people's elections. Yeah. Um, that would be a big help um, because it isn't as if um, the, so the, I was going to say the Soviets, the Russians are the only people who have attempted to interfere in, in democratic elections. Um, and, but... Uh, that's at least something that, that we can do. I mean, I, I don't imagine anybody thinks threatening to go to war with them over this is, is, is um, appropriate or, or desirable. It's a terrible problem. And the changes in technology um, have to, one of the 
to me, one of the most important things for the United States is to actually found, find ways to counter the technology that exists out there. So to a certain degree, it's up to us. May I just add one quick point? So, I mean, this may be pie in the sky, but if, if, it, if it comes out that an election results were tainted, you, we could imagine a world or a society in which the victor under those circumstances concedes that there's a problem and, and uh, uh, resigns or, or the, we create a framework for a special election of that sort. That would be an, an amazing deterrent for those who would meddle if at the end of the day it gets them nowhere. Um, but we would need to have a set of norms in which that's understood that, you know, hey, I cheated, that the, 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 someone cheated on my behalf, let's start over. Again, it's pie in the sky, but if you're saying like a true commitment to liberal democracy, not worrying about like the, the, the politics of the moment, I mean, one, one answer is to bake in uh, uh, opportunities and incentives for, for uh, re redoing elections under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. It would completely baffle the Russians. <laughs> yes, hi, my name is Jeff Newman. My question involves balance of power. My question involves searching for truth. My question involves what is the responsibility of the committee members on both the House and Senate committee to understand and pursue what has actually occurred, how deep it has occurred, and so forth. What we've seen so far, when we go back to before the House flipped, Nunes went to the White House mm -hmm. to report about what was going on. You, you all were talking earlier. You were asking questions. What is it that's possibly going to come out? And you all didn't really know because nobody knows. But this, the committee, the, my question is, what is the responsibility of the Republicans on the Senate and House committees to discern the truth and not just be there to deflect? I think that the Senate... Um Intelligence Committee has done a substantially better job and something closer to what we hope yeah. that they will do um, than the House did. Um, and now that the, the Democrats control the House, I think we'll find out much more um, from that. But so far, the, the Senate Intelligence Committee has followed their norms, which are that they treat every, they agree in a bipartisan way on, on all of the major decisions that they make. Um, we haven't gotten a lot of information out for, from them, <laughs> um, but they also have not, I mean, the, uh, Senator Burr, who's the chair, has not also made the kind of statements that Nunez made. In other words, it clearly hasn't worked against the investigation and has, um, so I think the Senate has worked better than the House. I mean, would you agree? I agree, totally. Yeah. I mean, they have a huge responsibility to do what you suggested. The question is whether they'll actually behave that way. Um, and we have, as you say, mixed evidence so yeah. far, and um, probably the test will come when the report is issued. I'm Diane Hart, and my question is, why is no one talking about cross-check where the three states, the secretaries of states, um, suppress votes of the black and Latino communities by saying, if your name was Jose Jimenez, in one state, and you were a Jose Jimenez in another state, they crossed you off, therefore suppressing apparently about 1.1 million votes, which were in the three states that Hillary needed to win. I think that's a, a it's a really good question. And when we were, when Madeline asked before about the, the future of the, particularly the Republican Party, they have a big decision to make, and they seem to be leaning in one direction. One decision is, one element of that or one side of that is to try to appeal to a broader public. And um, the second option is to have a better public, in quotes, that is one with fewer people in it who can vote and fewer people who can uh, oppose them. And one element of the party has chosen that as the path they've tried to follow. It's a, it's a profoundly uh, important uh, problem for, for the future of democracy in the United States. Good evening, I'm Mike Parker, and uh, I wanted to say with 25 years plus experience working in psychiatry, many of us uh, 
do see some qualities and uh, disparaging <laughs> things going on. Um, but having said that, really, uh, if the Mueller investigation, the report shows so much interference with voting and whatnot, wouldn't that be, and I can't be the only one thinking this, wouldn't that be if the president were to be removed, would that not also remove the vice president who was running on the same ticket with that same election? So there would have to be separate either articles of impeachment or a separate criminal indictment in that case. And um, if the evidence bears that, then, then what, that might be pursued as, as, as well. You were uh, talking about the 25th Amendment. Uh, yes. Oh, I apologize. Yes. Oh, is the is the twenty fifth amendment? Would the is he, would he have to like recuse himself? Or I, I was kind of thinking of either way. I mean, when I think of the Russian investigation and so much interference with that, it was a, uh, an election ticket with both of those people uh, now serving. It wouldn't they both kind of stand either with the twenty fifth amendment or an impeachment proceeding that they would both be removed? But I I think the with the Russian stuff. That may have happened before Pence joined the ticket. No. Well, and and if if it did, regar regardless of whether it did or didn't, they would have to. They would have to. There would have to be a, a connection to him, not just that he happened to be, you know, walking down the street while a, ro a bank was robbed or something like that. Right. Um, so um, uh, I don't. Again, the, that hasn't been something that's been discussed much that I've seen. But it, if the evidence is there, right. it's, it's an option for sure. But it, it would take evidence. I mean, right. you can yeah. imagine he would immediately say, I assume, I was just the vice presidential candidate. He never told me anything. And which could be entirely true. It's, yes. Which could is, <laughs> and historic, historically, not, yeah, not I mean, atypical. Vice presidents either. are not usually part of the strategy. If the South District has the ability to indict, but there's a policy in the Justice Department says you cannot indict, is there a way to circumvent that or challenge that on behalf of, the, uh, of our citizenry? Do states have a special jurisdiction to challenge that on behalf of their citizens? I mean, there's nothing to stop them from doing it. It would be litigated, and then it would, a judge would decide, I guess. The, right? I mean, so the, the a state couldn't bring, I mean, Let's put it this way. So the, let's start here. The Southern, the Southern District. If the Southern District goes ahead, and what, the, what's interesting about the Southern District right now is I believe the U.S. Attorney is recused because of longstanding ties with the President. So just like how Jeff Sessions had to recuse himself from overseeing the Mueller investigation, this, the political appointee that, that's running the Southern District is also on the shelf, meaning the career prosecutors are running the show. So there very well could be a moment in which we see friction of that sort. And if I were White House counsel, or I would say, we need to fire the, the recused <laughs> US attorney and put in someone like a William Barr, who now can basically oversee this and, and impose order there. So there is a possibility, there's a moment in which there might be more friction there. But it's highly unlikely to get there because I can't imagine I'm the only person who, who realized that there's a, there's a way to get around the career bureaucrat, which is to have a, a non-conflicted uh, US attorney running that office. As for state charges of federal crimes, that just, that's not really consistent with the not system. We charges, but a, challenging, a challenge on behalf of the states as part to, of the nation. To force the federal prosecutors to bring federal to so, force to to address yeah. the the um, indictment issues. Yeah, we don't have a mechanism for that other than voting. Okay, um, which is you know in, in many cases that's that's okay, but we don't. I mean, you in the same way that you would uh, many many I think that are raising concerns today, including um, myself, would be concerned if a state could somehow um, sabotage, say, a federal civil rights prosecution or things like that, like a, let's say a southern state in the 60s or the 50s. Um, we generally keep those fears separate, and the way they interact is through the Electoral College, through this, this Senate is, is state-based and things like that. That's where federalism plays that role, but it's not a, it's not a direct kind of fix that you're um, looking for. Hi, my name's Kevin Mack. I just want to piggyback off of one of the earlier questions. What is the Republican Party after Trump? Well, what is our country after Trump in that if executive power has been rising at a 45 degree angle, 
Um, does that eventually lead to dictatorship? The genie's out of the bottle. So how, what legal remedies do we have? Because this has been a, a trend since TR. Um, so where's this stop? Because I'm terrified still of a liberal version of Trump as well. Where's checks and balances going to return? It's a, it's a very good question. Uh, the odds are that probably the only way to do it is in its own way through the ballot box in terms of favoring candidates, not potential nominees, who make at least make promises about how they would act in office as a counter to this. But as was pointed out, the temptation on the part of the office holder is overwhelming uh, often because they can easily um, justify what they've done in terms of the good purpose that it serves. And, and oh, please. Well, I was just going to say that I also think it's holding members of Congress accountable. Yes. Because the most important check constitutionally is Congress on yes, the president. Fair enough. And I, I just think Americans forget that all the time. Like, they don't pay attention to Congress. I mean, they don't think that off-year elections matter. I mean, this year was an exception to that, and I thought that was a positive thing, that they like realized, oh, yeah, maybe it matters who's in Congress. It matters a lot who's in Congress. And the constitutional checks and balances are that Congress is the most important check on executive power, and if they're not, they have not been willing to do it, and the public could hold them accountable for failing to be that check. All right, then that's all the time we have tonight. Before we close, I'd like to thank UCLA for making tonight's program possible. A round of applause for them. Also, thanks to all of you for joining us. Come grab a glass of wine or beer, stick around, and join us at the reception. And finally, a round of applause for our speakers tonight. Thanks so much for being here.